Second lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verses 5 to 10. Hear the word of the Lord. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your slave who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, put on your apron, and serve me while I eat and drink, and later you may eat and drink? Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to uh, walk us through our text this morning, uh, working with both Psalm 90 and the gospel text. But I want to do that by starting off by reading um, a portion from a book that I read over the summer called Braiding Sweetgrass. Has anybody read this text? Not a ton of you, but a few. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so Robin Wall Kimmer is a very well-known botanist um, and has spent her life researching uh, the world of plants um, and is also a writer and is also a native, uh, a member of the First Nations. And so she has written about her experience in uh, two different books that are sort of making their way around the circuits right now. Um, One is something with moss, I can't remember the first word, and then the second one is braiding sweetgrass. And so, uh, friends, listen to uh, this piece. I once met an engineering student visiting from Europe who told me excitedly about going ricing in Minnesota with his friends, Ojibwe family. He was eager to experience a bit of Native American culture. They were on the lake by dawn, and all day long they pulled through the rice beds, knocking the ripe seed into the canoe. It didn't take long to collect quite a bit, he reported, but it's not very efficient. At least half of the rice just falls into the water, and they didn't seem to care. It's wasted. As a gesture of thanks to his host, a traditional ricing family, he offered to design a grain capture system that could be attached to the gunwales of their canoe. He sketched it out for them, showing them how his technique could get 85% more rice. His host listened respectfully and then said, yes, We could get more that way, but it's got to seed itself for next year, and what we leave behind is not wasted. You know, we are not the only ones who like rice. Do you think the ducks would stop here if we took it all? Our teachings tell us, never take more than half. She goes on to explain the concept of the honorable harvest. 
The guidelines for the honorable harvest are not written down, she says, or even consistently spoken of as a whole. They are reinforced in small acts of daily life, but if you were to list them, they might look something like this. Know the ways of the ones who take care of you so that you may take care of them. Introduce yourself and be accountable as the one who comes asking for life. Ask permission before taking and abide by the answer. Never take first and never take the last. Take only what you need. Take only that which is given. Never take more than half and leave some for others. Harvest in a way that minimizes harm. Use it respectfully and never waste what you have taken. Share. Give thanks for what you have been given. Give a gift in reciprocity for what you have taken. Sustain the ones who sustain you. And the earth will last forever. Sustain the ones who sustain you, and the earth will last forever. Never take more than half. A perspective such as this one keeps in check the importance of the human. Rather than seeing ourselves as rampant lords of the earth, this perspective sees humanity as caretakers as beings who join in the growth and in the harvest, not as beings for whom the harvest is owed. And when I read the texts, like the one that we had before us today, very difficult texts, very hard texts, if you were to read all of Psalm 90, there are portions of Psalm 90 that are often read in various different services, but if you read the whole of Psalm 90, you'll see that there are some really challenging verses within there. And likewise, the text that we just read from Luke 17 is a very difficult text and hard for us to make sense of because we're trying to peel away all these layers of slave owners and what is due and all of these different sorts of things. So when I read texts like the ones before us today, I can't help but wonder if our sacred text is actually inviting us to see ourselves as less important than we might like. To see ourselves as less important than we might like. And of course, our impulse as humans, all of us, myself included, is to say, no way. No way, psalmist. No way. No way, Jesus. Uh Uh-uh. You can't talk about people that way. That's not fair. How dare you threaten us with the anger and the wrath of God? How dare you remind us to do what we must and then to leave it at that? Well, I think one thing is for sure, and that the text is not as poetic at all as the botanist. That we've got clear. And in addition to that, the way that the text has been read and understood in history is to own and to dominate those around us because we want them to be spared of the wrath of God. So that is fair enough for us to resist these texts on those particular levels. But, friends, that's an old and tired conversation and we have got to get beyond it. 
So I invite us, as people who are, have and are developing an, an evolving faith, to see our work differently. The work of those who are partaking in the new Reformation, which I believe is all of us in this room, especially if we want to see the work of the church continue into the not just the 21st century, but the centuries beyond it. The work of those who are partaking in the new Reformation is to let the history stand as it is. We can't change it. We've got to let it stand as it is. But we also have to work to understand the text in a way that cooperates with our understanding of the universe. And perhaps the best word to the church is the same sentence that was spoken by Maya Angelou. She was not speaking to the church, by the way, but I'm going to use her sentence as good advice and a good word to us. And it goes like this. Do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, do better. And that is exactly a word for our church today, and we must expect ourselves to follow within that vein. We cannot change the past, but we can choose to create a new imagination for the future. And the text can offer us a positive perspective if we are willing to listen. Because, see, the text resists a sense of entitlement. It resists an idea that anything is owed to you. Psalm, very, Psalm 90 is very stark in the way that it understands the limits of what it means to be human. And another way of putting this is our existential limits. And that is just a fancy way of saying the limits around our existence, right? So when we talk about our existential limits, we talk about the ways in which the limits of our existence sort of creep into our everyday life. And we all of a sudden realize that, in fact, we are not omnipotent. We are not all-knowing. We do not have all of the power that we wish that we did, right? Those, that's an experience of our existential limits. And those limits are real, those limits are very real. We are very mortal beings. Regardless of how we feel today, okay, we are all going to reach the limits of our time and space on earth. And the choices that we make have to bear this in mind. And with all this breadth of human honesty, with all the reality that the psalmist is taking in around the limits of human existence, the psalmist wrestles with this truth. What does it mean to do something good in a world in which it feels like your limits are coming all around you and you can't get away from them? And so the, the psalmist experienced those limits in this word called the wrath of God. Okay, And the wrath of God has been sort of carried as this barbed wire throughout history that has just left gashes and wounds in its wake. And there's nothing that I can say to change that idea and to change the history that has happened around that text. But what I can do is try to open up what I think the psalmists might be helping us to get at. You see, there are so many different words for anger that are used within this psalm. They're words that we can't get away from. And in Hebrew, words are so fascinating. 
It's a little bit like Gaelic. I've been learning. I haven't been learning Gaelic, but I've been talking to people who speak it. And it's a very interesting language because it's so connected to the earth. It has so many conceptual words that are linked to something that is actually going on in our bodies. And Hebrew is very much the same. So when the psalmist talks about the Lord's anger, what the psalmist is talking about is that the Lord's face, the Lord's nose, God's nose is sort of screwed up. Like snorting is another way that that word is translated. So it sort of embodies this idea that, that God is in sort of this engagement with the world that has kind of this emotional level of engagement with it. That God's sort of movement within the world is not just a movement of power, but is a movement that, that also embraces emotion. And then the other word for anger that's used within this psalm, like I said, there's three different words for anger that are used. We often see it as wrath, anger, wrath, anger. There's different words that are used for each of those ones. But the other one that's used has to do with heat. It's another way of talking about boiling water. So it's saying the way that in which God is interacting with the world is causing heat, is causing some sort of resistance within God's being. And if we were to listen to that, we might say, what is happening within our actions, within our culture, that is somehow creating this imbalance within the divine life? What are we not responding to? How are we not working towards openness and authenticity in our own way? The word for wrath has to do with an intense fury that again in, conveys a deep emotional engagement with the world. And I think, you know, if, if you are committed to these Hebrew texts that then give way to our New Testament, uh, like I am, I'm deeply committed to these texts, then you will see that there's hardly a way to escape this idea that God's love for the world is built into the body of God and that God's experience in that love sort of comes out through how the text explains the body of God. And so we often can't get away from these texts that have to do with God's anger or God's wrath because what those texts help us to understand is that our actions and the ways in which we interact with the world create an emotional engagement in the body of God. It's hard for us to get away from the fact, and we can't, that those texts have been used to do harm. But they are still here for us today and waiting for us to listen to them differently and to figure out how they might be able to leverage us towards the good. Our tone in the psalm and the gospel is really all about doing. Once we finally get through this thing about the limits of our existence, then we actually get to dwell in this space of what it is that we do, how it is that we put our bodies to work within the world, what we choose to do as individuals and as a community. And the psalmist and the gospel help us to retain a perspective that it is not up to the world outside of us to create the world that we hope for, but in fact, 
the responsibility lies within our own bodies and within our own hands. And yet we do that with the perspective that we have limited ability, limited agency. And yet what we can do, we do. Do the best that you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. That is exactly what the psalm and the gospel is pushing us towards. To embrace this gladness in taking action, knowing that even our actions are limited, but that we do have capacity to do something. And so there is something that we must do. The psalmist ends with these great words, prosper the work of our hands. And friends, if we think that the psalmist is talking about our own good fortune, we are not reading it from that Hebraic perspective. The Hebraic perspective says, take what is in my hands and multiply it for the sake, not just of myself, but of the community. Take not just what I earn, but what I dream. Take not just what I'm working for, but what I'm hoping for, and take that and multiply it, not for my own well-being, but for the well-being of the entire community. That is what this text is helping us to embrace. So from our limits, we get to this place of our humility, and then we finally get to a place where we can open our hands and say, whatever it is that we can do, take this, And multiply that. And on this World Communion Sunday, I think it's so appropriate for us to be thinking about this whole idea of hands and harvest, of the honorable harvest, of paying attention to our limits, but then seeing how even our limits can inspire us to do good in a very small way. And as we kick off Stewardship Month, because October is Stewardship Month, so we'll be talking about money and resources and all of those sorts of things, how appropriate is it for us to be talking about the work of our hands? Because it's true that we need money. It's true that we need cash flow. Okay, there's no way around that. This building doesn't light itself. It doesn't heat itself, right? We have bills and we have things that we need to pay so that we can be existing here on this corner. We have staff and new carpets and things that need to be able to sustain the work that we do. And so it's true that all of us need to give in accordance with what we are able to help offset these costs, right? But it is also true that we need imagination, that we need creativity, and that we need new ways of thinking and engaging with the world. And perhaps our largest call as we end 2019 and move into 2020 is to think about how it is that we can expand our imagination about how we engage with the world. And we have a history of doing that here at Northminster, and I just want to reflect on a few of those things. I think of the hard labor that our folks from our congregation put in about three years ago to tackle our statement on human rights. 
and how much good fruit that has rendered within our community and within the resounding community, surrounding community. It was a bold and imaginative move, and it was the work of strong hands. And I think of the folks that helped put together the Friendship Luncheon, which was also a bold and imaginative move that helps to highlight the history of our congregation, but also helps to care for our people in a very concrete way. And it's the work of strong hands. And I can go on and on and on about different things that our specific congregation is doing, and I'm tempted to do that, for, but for the time being, I need to stop. Because ultimately, paying attention to our own limits and our own work, it can't just be about us. It can't just be about us looking inward, but it has to stretch into this whole idea of reciprocity. And that's a word that we're going to keep talking about, reciprocity. So just play with that word. We're not going to get it today. It's not going to make sense in this instance. But that when we think about this whole idea that our work needs to stretch into something that is reciprocal. So that we are able to bless the ones that bless us. So that we are able to give thanks to the ones who give thanks to us. So that we are able to sustain the ones that sustain us. Right? That's that whole idea of reciprocity. And even our limits can be part of this honorable harvest. And when I think about the way of Jesus, this is exactly what I think that Jesus was up to. Because the life of Jesus was a life where the limits of Jesus' human existence birthed new life for those who were around him, for the communities that followed him, and for us today. And so this is the way of Jesus, to accept our limits, to do what we can do until we know better, and then we can do better. To honor our people and our community and our land, not by exploitation or dominance, but by caretakers of deep shalom. I want to finish with a few more words from Robin Wall Kimmerer. We need the honorable harvest today, she says, but like the leeks and the marten, it is an endangered species that arose in another landscape, another time, from a legacy of traditional knowledge. The ethic of reciprocity was cleared away along with the forests, and the beauty of justice was traded away for more stuff. We've created a cultural and economic landscape that is hospitable to the growth of neither leeks nor honor. If the earth is nothing more than inanimate matter, if lives are nothing more than commodities, then the way of the honorable harvest, too, is dead. But when you stand in the stirring spring woods, you know otherwise. It is an animate earth that we hear calling us to feed the martens and kiss the rice. Wild leeks and wild ideas are in jeopardy. We have to transplant them both and nurture their return to the lands of their birth. We have to carry them across the wall 
restoring the honorable harvest and bringing back the medicine. Friends, let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we ask that you would prosper the work of our hands, prosper the work of our hands. And in that, the prayer is not that you would make us all rich, but that you would multiply the work that we do, that others would be able to partake in this whole idea of shalom, that that would in fact be the work of our hands. We ask this by the power and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, let us stand.